Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching once again early on a Saturday morning. (laughs) So what's astonishing you? I am astonished that I did not know, (laughs) but I'm happy to find out that October is Black History Month in Britain. Did you know that? I in the UK. Not. No. Yeah, I, I just found that out a few days ago. And I was like, what, what? I didn't know they had a Black History Month in the UK. And apparently it's a pretty big deal. Um, where did I learn this? I think I, I think I saw a YouTube video and then I kept clicking and kept, I was like, oh yes. And then I started looking at podcasts like, oh, this is a thing. And why wouldn't it be a thing? Because there are lots of Black people in the UK. Um, and so, of course, you get a little curious, uh, not a little, but a lot curious about Black history in the UK. And I found out some fascinating things. I don't have a, a lot to share, but just a few things that um, got my attention. Number one, that um, Africans have been in England since the time of the Romans. And duh, it makes sense. I should have mm-hmm. should have known that. But uh, um I tend to think, and I think most people tend to think, well, Black people didn't make it there until the transatlantic slave trade. Nope. There, since the time of the Romans. Also, there's this history of Jamaicans and uh, Black people from the Caribbean moving to, um, especially London, um, after World War II to help rebuild um, after the war. And there's this whole history of of black people helping to rebuild the country after the war. And I did not know that. And um, finally, you know, we know about Rosa Parks and the uh, bus boycott here in this country, but there's also a Bristol bus boycott associated with the civil rights movement um, in the UK. And so I'm excited um, to begin to explore this whole area of history that I have to admit, I know very little about, but October is officially Black History Month in the UK. And it's, <laughs> okay, this is funny, but not funny. Black people in the UK get the same kind of questions that we get here during Black History. It's like, why do you need a separate month? Why can't it be everybody's history? <laughs> like, wait, what? it's the same. That's your white stuff. British people accent. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was just my my sarcasm. I I dare not even try a British accent. But yes, October, Black History Month in the UK. So I'm going to put it on my calendar to celebrate Black History Month in February and in October, two months now. Huh. That is very interesting. Here's what I know about England, the Great British Baking Show and Call the Midwife. <laughs> Just a little bit of Downton Abbey. And I, gonna, I, will I thought say, you were going to say Downton Abbey. Yes, I, I, I am aware of um, the presence of Black people and in Britain because they um, there are always several Black candidates on the Great British Baking Show. And I have been watching a lot of it during the pandemic because it has zero tension and they're all super nice to each other and they help each other. and. Um, it's such a difference in what I believe America is right now. <laughs> so, well, I I have been listening to for some time this uh, podcast from the UK called Real Walk, Real Talk. It's um, by young, very young uh, Black Christians there, and <laughs> and. A large reason why I listen to it is because I love hearing these young Black people in the UK with their wonderful accent using um, 
African-American slang. It just sounds so cool with an <laughs> accent. So I, I just love listening to it. Like a lot of times I walk away and think, okay, now what was that about again? I just get so caught up in their accent. So Well, that is, yes. that the British accent is a great part of the joy. Like our whole family watches it and Carrie watches it as well. And it just tickles me because, um, I mean, I... There are everyone on the show, no matter what their ethnicity is, at times, I can't understand a word they're saying and they're speaking English. And that just sort of like, it, I don't know why it gives me joy. And like you learn new slang. I'm sorry, you had like a, a legitimate, um, serious thing to talk about. And I'm just saying. Oh, it's all like, good. Anyway. Well, well, so I was just about to talk about um, our Matthew and Peppa Pig. <laughs> we love, we <laughs> love Peppa Pig. Yeah. Well, I, I thought you were going to go in a totally different way with that astonishment. So I'm happy for that um, um, sort of non-devastating astonishment. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. right. That discovery made me very happy this week. That's good. That's good. I'm going to take it where you can find it. Yeah. Okay. Well, and ask what, me what's astonishing me. I was just about to. <laughs> <laughs> so Gosh. what is astonishing you? Um, well, <laughs> since you asked awkwardly, um, <laughs> So this week on Wednesday night, we um, had our first outdoor worship service and the first gathering that we've had since, you know, since March, since the second Sunday in March. And so um, it was outside and I was really serious with everyone about, you know, you need to wear a mask and you, we need to be committed to social distancing. Like this needs, this needs to be an event where the most medically vulnerable person in our community could come and could be safe. I'm not saying that they should come, obviously. I'm just saying that we we need to um, gather as a community in a way that the weakest among us physically are are welcome and safe. And so so we did, and I mean, um, the worship team, again, it was outside. People are in their cars. We're saying like, you can't come within, I mean, you can get out of your car, but you can't sit next to somebody else, right? Like you got to stay in your parking place and the team. Did you use, did you use um, a loudspeaker or? We FM? did. There's okay. a, no, because apparently the FM thing, I mean, I haven't done any research about it. Um, my friend Elizabeth, who's the, one of the leaders of our worship team did the leader of our worship team, she did some research in it and it's a little, um, like the legality of it. I mean, like technically you're supposed to have a broadcasting license or I mean, there's, there's just a lot involved. So we, um, she had an outdoor, um, speaker system that we used, which was great. Um, but, um, we, the other thing we did was we had the worship team. We we're like, Hey, you, you have to wear a mask. Like even, when you're singing with mics, we have to wear a mask, which I mean, I, I mean, A, I was wearing a mask too. So I understand that it's hard. And, um, and obviously, um, I don't want, you know, at times people can get lightheaded and obviously, you know, then take a break or sit down. I don't want anyone to pass out, but I think it's really important for leaders to be wearing masks because it sends this visual cue to everyone else that we have to do this and it helps people like if you were sitting in your car or sitting in your space and you feel like well I'm not buying anybody I can take my mask off but then you see the people who are up front and leading and they're wearing a mask then you go okay well if I'm just sitting here I can wear a mask too so it's not um, I just think it's really important because um, it's just easy we are also desperate to forget, like we're so desperate to go back to what we used to have that um, those visual cues are really important because otherwise taking a mask off, even if you don't want to, it sends a signal of like, we don't really have to do this. Mm -hmm. um, or some of us really don't have to do this and you're probably part of the sum of this. Um, so anyway, uh, we did that and, and people did pretty well. Uh, I mean, people did well, um, but I mean, I guess just the thing I was astonished about is like how much I missed it and how good it was. And even, I mean, it's hard because we were doing a lot of 
wor worship, which I mean, I'm adopting the terminology of some folks in my community of like worship is not the whole service, but worship is the part where you're where you're singing and you know, like just that adoring God um, part. Um, <clears throat> but I just have missed it so much. And even though it's different, because when we're in a sanctuary and we're sitting together, you get to hear all the other voices around you and you don't, you can't really do that when you're spaced out in that way, but still we're together and we are um, worshiping God together. And it was just so powerful and um, good and beautiful. And I was just so grateful um, so, so grateful. And, and so that is what I was astonished by. And, um, you know, lots of questions about like, you know, what's next and can we do it again? And what does this mean? And I mean, those are all important questions, but I just um, want to really not take for granted that we got to do it at all. And just how, um, I mean, I think just lots of people were saying we, we knew we missed it, but like to get there and experience it and you realize like, Oh my gosh, like, mm -hmm. um, it's just been so, it, it's been so good. And, um, so that is what is astonishing. So now that you're on the other side of this event, do you have any anxiety about, um, safety? I mean, I think, um, we've been really clear the whole way to say to people that we are taking this, you know, one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. So I'm grateful for a community that, uh, you know, isn't pushing to say like, hey, now that we've done this, we're going to do it every week, right? Like th that we were able to say to people, we're trying this and we have to see what happens. And we, I mean, because my, my concern is people do love each other so much that it's easy to, you know, just the the more you do it, um, that things just relax more and more. And and we already had folks in our community when we were live streaming from the sanctuary, um, a bunch of us, including me, we we got coronavirus and it was awful. But, I mean, it was, it, I mean, obviously none of us, thank God, got very, very sick. And I'm really grateful for that mercy. Um, but but I, when I say awful, I don't mean like the actual illness. I just mean the um the, the the reality of it well and the weight that these yes. people i love had gotten sick at church do i mean like that was horrible and it wasn't that i mean i you know i feel like we did i mean in hindsight would i do some things differently sure but i do feel like it's not like we were being wild or irresponsible or you know it's just like it's contagious. You can get it. And so I don't, you know, my concern is I don't want to experience that again. I don't want that in our community again. Um, just selfishly, I don't want the emotional, psychological, spiritual burden of knowing that, you know, as the pastor of the church, there was um, that people got sick at the church, through the church, because of the church, that. So my concern is the more we do these things, the more people sort of get comfortable and relax. I mean, we could already see at the end of the event, which we had very clearly said was going to be an hour. So, you know, having a tight time helps people stay vigilant and aware of what's happening. Um, and at the end, you know, I don't want to police anybody because that stinks. But I mean, you do have to walk around and say like, Hey, put your mask on, which I does not feel good. Like it feels, um, authoritarian and it's just, I mean, it, that's super hard. And then at the end, you know, I was helping put things away and you know, there's a group of folks who were standing in a circle praying for one another and they were wearing masks. And it's not like, I don't want people to pray for one another, but I also know like social distancing was not happening in that moment. And so again, it's just really tricky and really hard. And so um, you don't want to be like that. Kid. I feel like that teacher at recess being like, one person, I'm going to keep the whole class inside. But I just, I mean, I just know how hard it is. Um, so I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel like, phew, now we're, we're good for forever and ever. Um, especially, 
um, this whole thing is just so unknown. Um, and I suspect that we are in a kind of a lull, low period now. And um, I don't know, obviously I don't know anything, but what I want, what I do know is that I want to do everything in my power to protect and shepherd the people in my community. And so that means going slow before we go fast. Um, so. Well, um, at the very least, it seems like the people in your congregation got this um, surge of relational energy, right? Because part of the struggle of this season has been to be separated from people that we love, people that we're accustomed to seeing at least once a week. Um, and so it sounds like it was just really energizing for your congregation to get together. It was good. And I, and I was happy. I mean, it was a good cross section of the congregation and we did it at dinner time on Wednesday. So I know there were lots of reasons why um, a lot of people couldn't be there, but I was really afraid that, that only one um, ethnic group would be rec would be represented. And so I was relieved that, um, you know, people felt, you know, people of all different ethnicities and demographics felt safe participating. Um, so, I mean, we'll see, but. Uh, it so just how was, how was, how was preaching with the mask on? Uh, well, I didn't preach. I, I you did, did not like, preach. No, I am that's shocked. What I mean. <laughs> see, if I had known that I would have started the podcast with, I am astonished. <laughs> you had a worship I service. Say, if I had known done. that, I would have come, right? <laughs> 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 no, I mean, I, very deliberately, we, we wanted this to be a space where people could do things that they can't do when we're doing things virtually. And so, I mean, preaching is one of the things that like, it's not the same, but people can listen to a sermon and have broadly the same experience when we are pre-recording and releasing it. But but to to sing and worship, that is something that we really can't do, especially because we have like one individual who will record a song and then people can sing along while they're watching. But I mean, we all know that it's just not the same and oftentimes that doesn't happen. And so, um, so I mean... Yeah, so we just really wanted to focus it on the things that can't happen um, when, uh, you know, the way that we're doing Sunday morning right now. So, so yeah, I didn't. So I, I, you know, welcome folks. I did a prayer and like I had a little word, I had a word, but I mean, you know, um, but, but I mean, to your point, so we were fortunate that we had a really good sound system. So, I mean, having a mic really does, I mean, you just, put it really close to your mask and that, mm -hmm. that really helps with enunciation, but you really do have to articulate in a different way. Um, yes. I have, I've done several funerals in the season and I have to admit one funeral that was in our um, sanctuary um, uh, or the Dorita church sanctuary. And um, you, you have to walk up a few steps and, you know, there's a platform and there's, there's probably about, 10 to 12 feet between the pulpit and the first pew. And so um, when it was time to preach, I, I took my mask off just to be able to be heard. And afterward, I felt terrible. I was like, I really shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And so every other funeral, I've kept my mask on. And it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Um, especially if you have um, asthma. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so yeah, it's, it's really work. And um, this last funeral I did, I had a pretty heavy duty N95 mask and it was, it was hard. Um, and you can, yeah, it, yeah, it is. It, it's it is definitely different than a piece of cloth. I was going to get a, a very thin, I was going to switch masks when it was time to give the eulogy and put on a, a thinner kind of, um, you know, like those light blue surgical looking masks. Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to my wife about it and she said, mm -mm -mm -mm, you keep that N95 on. I was like, okay, all right, we'll do it. Yeah. But it, it's challenging. Well, one, one true thing is on the other side of the season, whenever, whenever we do, I mean, it's sort of like all this time, like, running with weights on or swimming with weights that like it's a training exercise. And when you get back to a place where we can do 
things unhindered, it's just gonna be such a different yeah. empowering experience. So anyway, we should move on. What are you thinking about, friend? I am thinking about uh, those men in Michigan uh, charged with uh, kidnapping the governor of, of that state, uh, Governor uh, Whitmer. And uh, let's see, six charged by the federal government, seven charged by the state. I just think as the country's demographics continue to change, listen, I remember being a student in high school and getting a Time magazine. And as a matter of fact, I think I still have it somewhere in my collection of things from that time in my life. But the cover of the magazine had a picture of the American flag. Instead of red, white, and blue, it was um, various skin tones, various skin shades and colors. And the primary article in that issue was about the changing demographics of the country. And it said something like by 2030, 2040, the, the country was going to be, um, quote, majority minority. And I remember being in high school thinking, man, that's such a long time away. I don't know yeah. if that will ever happen. And uh, that's probably why the reason, that's probably one of the reasons why I kept that, that magazine. But um, yeah, we, we are in the midst of that transition. And I think as it continues to happen, there's just going to be a number of white people whose anxiety grows and grows. They, they, they are taking over our country. And yeah, so I, you're going to get yeah. groups like this that just get, um, get crazier and crazier. And we've, we've got to, we've got to see this as, as scary as it is on the surface, we've got to confront this kind of thing because it, it's, it has the potential to get a lot worse before it gets better. Well, I just was thinking um, about this meme that I saw this week. You know, one of the ones where it's like Gene Hackman as Willy Wonka, right? And above his head, it said something like, uh, you know, some something to that, uh, referencing that, like, you know, whites will be a minority in 2030. And then underneath it's like, are you, are you saying there's something bad about being a minority in this country? <laughs> this idea that like, hmm. if everything um, is okay and fair and just the hmm. way so, so many white people claim, then, then why would there be this kind of anxiety about being a minority if minorities are treated you know, justly and fairly in this country. And I think, you know, the fear tells a truth that the rhetoric never will. Um, and that is just a really hard, um, it's just a really important thing to, to note. But I mean, that's, I think it just speaks to the, the season that we're living through that, I mean, I, I'm not saying it didn't get coverage. Obviously it got coverage, but like the fact that people are like, oh yeah, the FBI ordered a plot to kidnap a sitting governor and put her on trial for treason and execute her and overthrow the government. Like, yeah, that's, that sounds like a Thursday in 2020. It's just. And the uh, narrative is so centered around these violent protesters. Right. Um, yeah. I, like I, maybe maybe this should have been my astonishment because I, I am astonished how, yes, we can report this with just, here are the straight facts of the situation and everyone not look around and go, okay, this, this is crazy. Well, I mean, and I think it, it's terrible that the reality is the rhetoric, political rhetoric from, from the Republican party right now is there's lawlessness and disorder and violence and our cities aren't safe and and the finger is pointed at Black Lives Matter and Antifa and then you have an actual plot to overthrow the government by white supremacists and and those those people are not recognized as the domestic terrorists that they are now and always have been and again it's just the gaslighting and we've been saying for for months 
for years that this is such an apocalyptic moment in that it's just revealing everything. Everything is so clearly revealed that it is terrifying um, it just to see what you've always sort of suspected is like, oh, it's, it's exactly as bad as we thought. Yes, and a change in the demographics does not automatically mean a change in uh, the country's attitude or a change in the country's sense of justice. Because if we're not careful, we will end up like South Africa. Yeah. Right. A white minority ruling over a black and brown majority. And yeah. And and that is it seems to me that's what the Republican Party is moving toward. It's like, okay, well, and, there may yeah. be more of you, but listen, we want to maintain power, control, wealth. No, I think I mean, and I think you're exactly right that it's the shifting demographics that fuels the fear that justifies um, the actions that are just on the plain, on the plain face of it, um, unjust and, uh, you know, against the stated ideals of this country. And I, I mean, and I appreciate the chance just to name, um, and, and I, and I need to find other places to do that, that I, I think there are just a lot of white Americans who still don't understand the level of real lived terror at this moment. I mean, I know we talked about it last week as well, but I mean, I think, I mean, I still see all kinds of um, posts on social media about like, it's, you know, it's politics and let's not judge one another for our politics. And like, no matter what happens on November 3rd, we'll wake up on, you know, and I, and I think for white people, that is true and it is not true for black and brown americans like the young man who was shot and killed by the police this week and they were because he had intervened to stop a domestic abuse situation in a convenience store and he had stopped the fight and protected the woman and the police came and shot him dead and then they uncovered his tweets saying like, uh, you know, I just want to say I've never had a bad experience with law enforcement and, you know, I've always been treated fairly. And I, you know, and the reality is, again, it only, you only have to be shot by the police one time. And that, you know, I think there are different ways of dealing with that existential terror. And I'm certainly not standing in judgment of how, of how people do it, whether you just sort of say, I can't control it. So I'm just going to deny it. and and live my life and hope that I don't get hit or, or whether you're, you know, sort of constantly consciously carrying the weight of knowing that like, statistically, it probably won't happen to you, but there's no day of your life that you aren't aware that you could be a statistic. And I think, I mean, it's very sad for me that white people look at the percentages and see numbers and people of color look at the percentages and see a possible future. And that's just a very different psychological weight. And I do wish that, I mean, that at least white women understood it a little bit better because it is much the same way that you, not the same, but not dissimilar from the way that you look at statistics around, um, sexual assault and rape and you sort of know like most of the time you can live your life and you don't feel afraid but then all of a sudden you find yourself you know walking through a parking garage alone and you're realizing like oh I probably will get back to my car safely there's probably nobody hiding underneath my you know there's prop but also I I can never do this without an awareness that it could could be and so again like I mean it would be an interesting it would be interesting to do a study. I suspect that it is um, more dangerous to be a person of color in America than a woman in America. Like the risks of sexual assault and racial violence are not the same. And then of course, black women carry the burden of both um, risk sets. But um, I just, I, it breaks my heart that there's so little 
empathy and there's so little empathy and compassion and understanding about white Americans, because it seems to me as a white American, um, or even among white Christians, it seems to me as a white Christian deliberate, like you have to work hard to not be able to imagine what that's like and make a connection like it, that it's hard. It takes a concerted effort to harden your heart to not understand um, and acknowledge the the weight of that. Yeah, I remember um, being in seminary at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary, what, 20 years ago. And um, I remember my Old Testament professor, Johanna Boss, gave, just gave me a book. Um, she was very good to me. Um, and, and I, I hate that I cannot remember the author of the book. It was a feminist theologian and, uh, the book was about an ethic of solidarity that, that Christian ethics need to have, um, this, this idea that we are in solidarity with people who are, who are different than us. And for me, that's one way I identify with others because when you are in a group that has the kind of stress, uh, psychological weight, um, like um, we have as African-Americans, it's very easy when the pressure is on another group to sit back and go, okay, it's not about us right now. Let me just collect myself. Let me, let me um, just take this moment where, you know, it's not us feeling under threat right now. Let those people feel. No, I've, I've got to be in a place where I join other people. And mm-hmm. I realized that for way too long, um, I allowed people in the Latino community to suffer without really feeling it without just being, you know, grateful that, okay, it's, it's not us right now, but no, I've got to enter into that. I've got to embrace that as part of my own uh, walk in suffering. And well, I mean, and to me, like, that's one of the huge things. I mean, I think we look at the cross and we skip right to like redemption and yeah. resurrection. And instead of saying like, look, what, what is that telling us? That is telling us that the Lord was crucified. And so what that means is we stand with the crucified. So so why did all why did the crowd shout for Barabbas? Why why did the crowd shout crucify him? Why did the disciples betray and abandon? It's because the thought of crucifixion was so terrifying that all they wanted to do was make it be somebody else, not me, right? Like they were just so afraid. And, and, and then we are supposed to be able to look back at that story and go, oh gosh, the one who was crucified looks utterly defenseless and weak. And the reality is God is with that person. And God, in the case of Jesus, is that person. And so what we're supposed to forever walk away from is the response of a person of faith when a crucifixion is happening, whether that's a, a lynching or a mass deportation or whatever, whatever that looks like in your century, people of faith are not supposed to run away from that. They're supposed to run towards it. They're supposed to interrupt it, even at the risk of being swept up into it. And we, we don't understand that. We think like, oh, the cross means resurrection. Instead of saying, I mean, yes, but first uh, what the cross um reveals to us is that God is never working through this kind of public um, or private violence. Like we don't destroy evil by destroying people. And we are meant to A, reject that as utterly evil and of the devil, and then B, disrupt that. And then C, recognize that what does it matter if you you know, save your, you know, gain the whole world, but lose your very soul, that what's at stake, whether we are the ones being rounded up or not, what's at stake is our souls. And so we should always be looking around and going, who is being crucified in this moment? My Lord identifies with those people. And so if I follow Jesus, I have to be on the side of those people, the crucified and not the crucifiers. And all the more important if you are from the same whatever 
power group, identity group of those who are the crucifiers that you then have this real agency of, of place of, of being a disruptor and saying, no, like, no, I, I, I stand over there, which all of a sudden then means everybody else um, has to, has to deal with identifying with the crucified as well. And that, that's really, um, I just, it frustrates me that we don't understand Mm. that, that I think sometimes our atonement theologies turn the cross into like a useful tool used by God instead of, instead of the crucifixion of Jesus being God's condemnation and utter rejection, we go like, well, no, Jesus, you know, God needed someone to suffer for sin. And so the, I mean, the cross becomes like this matter of fact, um, you know, means that that was justified by the ends instead of Jesus on the cross being a revelation of um, the, the utter depravity of this type of, um, meaning making like the meaning making of crucifying someone um so yes we should all be identifying with whatever marginalized group is most existentially threatened if we're followers of jesus like if you're not a follower of jesus that you know whatever i it's up to you you know to identify your compassion or whatever but if you're a follower of jesus you identify with the crucified if you don't identify with the crucified then you don't identify with jesus Wow. Well, okay. So I had to look at that book because <laughs> it was bothering me. It's Sharon Welch, A Feminist Ethic of Risk. And you sound like you've, you know, read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, I was thinking in preparation for my sermon, which I still have not finished, um, was talking about once you know, again, I'm astonished. Go ahead. <laughs> referencing the book of Numbers. And I'm like, that's what I always think when people are like, I've read the Bible cover to cover. And I'm like, really? I mean, really? Come on. You know, one I of the kind of think, <laughs> just kind of don't believe you. One of the things that's been so helpful to me is the guys at um, the, the Bible Project. And they have this um, line there they do a series on okay so what what is this book called the bible and they say over and over again that the bible is hebrew meditation literature that you're not supposed to read through it once and then close the book and said i read it i got it no you're supposed to chew on this over and over and over for a lifetime and the more you chew on it the more you um, immerse yourself in it the, the more you understand. Um, and, and even after doing it for a lifetime, there's just so much you, you won't understand. But the, but the journey of learning and saturating your heart and mind in the scriptures is formative. And I, you know, I, I try to be aware in my own preaching of, you know, okay, here's a, here's a verse and we're going to, I'm going to talk 20 minutes about this verse. Um, I, I get concerned that uh, many Christians today are not getting enough of the text. Well, I think that's true, but I also just want to be snarky for a minute and say, what? I, you know, there's, there's huge swaths of the Torah of like these lists of names and families and clans and specifically which parts of the promised land we're going. And I, I mean, and I think those are, that's very sacred text. But I just think anybody who claims to read the Bible cover to cover, and I'm like, then you would know enough to know that we all know you skipped some of those chapters. Like we all know that when you came to some of those chapters that were just names that to us are incomprehensible. And I mean, like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying like, come on. (laughs) We know there were parts of Deuteronomy, parts of Leviticus, parts of numbers like i'll give you that you read every single word of genesis every single word of the prophets every single word of the new testament but like come on anyway whatever maybe i'm just being way too (laughs) revealing about myself (laughs) sorry there are some people that i believe have actually read every word but not as many people who claim to have done it anyway you need to get me out of this conversation i'm digging myself um, what what are you thinking about 
Um, well, you and I were talking a little bit earlier this week and said we would circle around back around to this conversation today. Um, so this week I was in, um, I should have been in 20 hours of Zoom meetings. I was only in 16. These Only um, 16. Only in 16. There were, um, I'm, I'm serving on a, a board for the denomination, which I think I think I was called to do. Otherwise, I'm just a huge chump. I don't know. It's an open question. But um, this week there was a there, there was the, one of the retreats, which obviously is virtual, and so um, it probably would have been really enjoyable had we been in a physical place together and had like actual worship together and you know meet, shared meals and uh, you know gotten to know one another as humans, but that is not to be. And so it was um, five, four hour Zoom meetings and it was just super, super intense. Um, but the but the part that you and I talked about that I wanted to talk about here was, um, so this is the mission board of the denomination. And um, one of the, um, one of the things that the um, president of the mission board is a woman named, um, Diane Moffat, who I really just think is a visionary and anointed leader um, for the denomination. And I think we have several right now leaders who just, um, I am really um, amazed and astonished um, at God's steadfast faithfulness to this church by, by calling people to serve. Um, and and um, she, she um, Reverend Moffat has, has, um, really centered something called the Matthew 25 initiative, um, which is saying like the church needs to be about the fundamental mission of Jesus um, as, as codified in the 25th chapter of Matthew. I mean, you just need a focus, right? And so she's chosen um, the parable of the sheep and goats. And actually she didn't choose it. The denomination itself was one of those things where at the biannual general assembly, the whole church said like, yes, we're going to be a Matthew 25 church and made a beautiful proclamation and then stuck it in a drawer. And then she came to leadership in the mission and she said, okay, well, if we are going to vote about it and publish it, then how about we then start to lead our mission agency and center this text and center this identity and then start making choices about what we do and what we don't do based on fidelity to, to Matthew 25. And she has identified three foci for that being, um, eradicating poverty, dismantling systemic racism and, um, and, and congregational vitality. And I, I know, um, that there are people who, who would just sort of roll their eyes at the, um, what, what in some people's eyes would be grandiosity and other people's eyes would be like, naivete. Um, but I also just think if a plain reading of Matthew 25 is that the Lord is calling his people to disrupt, um, d- disrupt, um, things that we take as inevitable in the world being poverty and enmity. Um, and I, I think these things happen not through a government initiative and not through, you know, uh, the, the, um, fiat of powerful people from the top and it trickles down. I think, that it's communities of committed disciples of Jesus Christ who, who in all, all across the face of the earth begin to disrupt what we have come to accept as normal and say, actually, I am my brother's keeper and actually I am intervening in this way. So I think just the brilliance of connecting these, these what, what can seem as um, a, a huge programmatic, idealistic um, what some people would dismiss as social justice, what I would say is justice, justice, but to connect that with the lived experience of believers in local church communities, because that's the witness of, of scripture in general and the New Testament in particular is that, it, that the body of Christ, which is now the church, is where this healing and wholeness and utter transformation comes from. Anyway, end scene. We're at this meeting and because... Um, one of the focuses is dismantling systemic racism or, you know, all racism is systemic. So just racism, there's a lot of um, unlearning that has to happen on leaders of, of this group. Um, and so, you know, part of the work was um, several panels where 
um, Black leaders within the PCUSA share their experience about what it's like to be a, a, a Black person in this majority white, majority wealthy denomination. Um, and, and that is a, a hard conversation to listen to um, because people um, have, Black people have a lot of pain um, and have been treated and betrayed and um, tokenized and um, in lots of ways. And, and there's just systemic disempowerment and disenfranchise of um, Black congregations that people are just kind of like, oh, well, you know, and um, one um, man, and I can't remember which of the panels was sharing this, was just talking about being part of a congregation that's vital and um, beautiful and small and not, you know, does not have a lot of economic resources and was recently in a Zoom meeting with two other pastors who happened to be white and they were talking about, you know, the difficulties of sustaining their congregations in this, you know, after the pandemic, because it obviously affects all of us economically. And the, the one pastor was saying like, yeah, I don't know how long we're going to be able to hold on after January. I mean, we only have 2 million in our endowment. And the other guy was like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how long we're going to be able to hang on. We've got seven and a half million, but that's not that much more. And, you know, the, the speaker on the panel, who's a black man and a, you know, saying like, are, you know, like, it's just crazy that, the difference in lived experiences that we just think is like, oh yeah, that's normal. And what, and what he was pointing out, which is so true is like, how is it that people, the body of Christ, white people in the body of Christ are not asking the question, how come some of our churches have 2 million, 7 million, 15 million, $25 million endowments. And other of our churches are barely scraping by and, and, and Hey, Presbyterians who pride themselves on being such deep critical thinkers, where do you think that money came from? Where do you think that money came from? And, and how do you think that the um, previous generations of white people who founded your congregations had all that money to give away? And what does justice look like? Does justice look like, I mean, anyway, they're just really deep truths that are being brought out of the shadows and out past politeness and acknowledged in ways that are difficult. And then the other thing was they, for the past year, have contracted with, um, a, a professor from the University of Louisville to do a diversity, equity, and inclusion audit of this PMA board. And so then she was um, reporting on her conclusions, which are um, sh like shameful um, and really painful to hear. And this is as somebody who's just like, I'm just coming on the board. So like, I, I you know, haven't been involved in any of the experiences that she's um that she's talking about, but also I'm not an idiot. And I know that there's nothing particularly unique about this board as opposed to other places and spaces where I've been active participants. And she's just pointing out things and I'm almost on the other side of the barn because this is really what we wanted to talk about was um, she was telling about things she noticed for the past year. And, and I mean, it's incredible that when the board is having these really difficult conversations or, or doing um, work on you know, like what they term cultural humility or just, just creating space for people who are tokenized as like, oh, isn't our denomination wonderful because we have, you know, people of color in leadership positions, but then actually getting to a place where um, you create a space where people can tell the truth and the truth that doesn't make white people feel good, but that is nonetheless the truth. And then that truth comes out as with its real feelings, which is like, I am, I am hurt, but I am angry at the injustice that's been perpetrated against me by people who claim the name of Jesus and claim to be my brothers and sisters. And like, you know, the board I think has been doing really deep work about, you know, like looking at that and, and asking people to do exercises and work through things. And this, the woman who's been observing them is saying like, I notice that when it comes time to move past sort of routine business and budgeting and that kind of stuff to this deeper um, work that I think is, you know, um, d revealing powers and principalities that are really our true enemies, that she's saying literally white people get up and walk out of the room. Like there are these long meetings and people sit at the table and like participate. But then when it becomes to a discussion about racism, 
and um, not just what's happening out there at the White House, but what's happening in here, in the places where we are ridiculously in charge, like literally she's saying, I watch white people get up, walk out of the room, excuse themselves. There's, there's like table projects and the table full of white people just chooses not to participate. Like just, you know, she's saying like your body language, you know, if, if there's a discussion about systemic racism and you, um, you know, sit down and start typing on your computer or talking on your phone. I mean, just like these are, and I was saying, we were saying earlier, like, it's just so hard because it's not like she's doing something like super technical, sneaky, and like taking a special instrument to like measure your rapid eye movements and saying like, I can tell that you are looking, I mean, she's saying like, I can tell because you literally get up and walk out of the room and what do you, or, or there's an open discussion and you just sit there with your arms crossed and refuse to participate and 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 she's saying like what do you think that communicates to people of color who are doing this really brave and painful work of telling you the truth and you just sit there and you know it's interesting because as the parent of two um, one teenager and one about to be teenager like i talk to them all the time about like you your voice is not the only thing that communicates to me, right? So like when I call you out on your attitude and your internal narrative is like, oh, she's such a like B, like I didn't even say anything. How unjust is it? I'm like, yes, I understand how words work. And I understand that you didn't vocalize any words, but when you sigh a sigh too deep for words and when you stomp out of the room and when you roll your eyes like, I can see that, right? And so, and I just felt like this woman is sort of saying to the white people, like, you know, we can see you, right? Like, you wow. know, and I think wow. on the one hand, I mean, just sitting there as somebody who deeply supports this work, I mean, I, it's not like I don't understand that it's painful. Like, it's deeply painful and uncomfortable, Um I think for everyone to be a part of those conversations, but it's deeply painful and uncomfortable for white people to be a part of those conversations. But the difference is that I think white people don't understand is people of color are constantly in situations where they're always navigating, like, how do I say what I need to say without making it worse, without getting a backlash? Like you're just constantly navigating the discomfort and anxiety of like, I need to be in this space, but it's really uncomfortable for me to be in this space. And like, if I tell the truth, will I get attacked? And, and in these conversations about systemic racism and, and looking at our history, white people feel, I mean, I, obviously I'm not a person of color, so I don't, but I imagine that we, for the first time in our lives, feel that kind of anxiety and discomfort of being in the room and having the conversation and knowing that we could say something wrong and knowing that it could change how people feel about us and like and, and but we've never felt it before so we're like I'm not putting up with this and we walk out of the room and I think people of color are like do you understand this is every day of my life mm. like you're sad that you have to do this sitting around a boardroom I have to do this in the grocery store right and I, so I just I, I mean I just want to to say that I don't think that like there are white people like me who go like, well, I'm a progressive Christian, so I'm done, right? Like, so anything I do is like, I'm a good person. Like I'm, I didn't, whatever. I didn't vote for whoever. I don't have any white sheets in my closet. I don't, I don't have an all lives matter sticker on my car. Like I'm good. Right. And then when we get into a conversation and we feel uncomfortable, the only thing we can understand then is like, this conversation is inappropriate because it makes me feel bad. Instead of saying like, yes, I feel bad, but that doesn't mean that this is a bad conversation and that this discomfort is holy and there's actually new life and healing happening. But if we just say, well, I'm not going to be a part of anything that makes me feel bad, then basically what we're saying is, so I'm cool with everything in the world being exactly the way it is right now. And everyone else in the world has to change, but not me. I'm perfect. I'm good. And, and nobody needs to teach me or tell me anything because I'm not part of the problem. Wow. I think part of the hard work of being an ally is that you have to be in a place of listening, learning, and um, repentance. 
And that's challenging when you would rather just say, okay, here's my position. Um, I'm one of the good people. Mm-hmm. Don't challenge me on anything. Let's just, <laughs> let's just move forward together. Let's not have hard conversations. And yeah, I, I think one of the, one of the most challenging things for me as an African-American pastor in a historically white congregation is to engage people in conversation. And I understand that there is a place in which talk is just talk and it doesn't change anything. It doesn't lead to any action. It's just talk. But I also know that there is a place where, or in which talk is powerful. Conversation is powerful. Conversation is transformative. And I think when it comes to racism, we have to talk as difficult as it is for everybody. We have to talk. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in a place now in the congregation that I serve, very lovely people. You know, how do, how do I engage them in this painful conversation that they'd rather not have? They'd rather rest in the reality, in the good reality, in the reality that I celebrate that, hey, we've called an African-American pastor. We are, we are part of the group that did not leave this neighborhood when the right. uh, demographics started to change. Hey, we, <laughs> right, we're, we're the good guys. Celebrate that all day long. And <laughs> we still have work to do. Well, and I think like this idea that we would say, okay, I recognize that one of the powers and principalities in our nation, I mean, like we're Christians who live in America, so America is our context. And I mean, it's not about America, but like this is the place where we where we are physically. So one of the powers and principalities in our nation is, um, is racism and is the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. And, you know, that in that this is different than prejudice and it's different than bias. And so we can recognize that as good liberal progressive um, Christians, quote, good, whatever. But then we have this expectation that somehow we're going to go out and dismantle those systems, but we can't even be in a conversation that tells the truth about where they are. Like, how do we really think we're going to do the work if we can't even have a talk? And like, how do we think that we can help um, our brothers and sisters dismantle these systems if we're not even willing to feel uncomfortable and listen to them tell us the truth about their lived experience, right? Like, it's just not, it doesn't make any sense. And I just think, like, one of the things we have to ex- understand as white people is that the whole world has been set up to make us comfortable all the time. So I'm not saying we are comfortable all the time, but I mean, mostly when white people are uncomfortable, it's because something really wrong is something is out of order. And if we're going to do this work, then we're going to be really uncomfortable because it's revealing to us that things that were presented to us as just inevitable or the air that, that there was deep injustice there and, and really accepting that that's not a problem out there, but a problem in my sphere of influence and in my life, like that is so painful. But I think it comes down to the issue of like, do you, I mean, Pharisees were people who showed up being like, I'm a good person. I know what's right and I'm doing it. Disciples were people who were like, God is up to something. I feel totally inadequate. I don't understand. I screw up a lot, but I'm going to stay next to Jesus because he's ushering in the kingdom. Pharisees ultimately walked away because they did not want to face the truth. The truth wasn't that Jesus didn't want them. The truth was that Jesus was was going to call them into a deeper level of righteousness. And they didn't want a deeper level of righteousness, many of them. And that's why they walked away. And I think for white Christians who care about this work, we're going to have to decide, do we want to be Pharisees? Or do we want to be disciples? And so being a disciple is, is means that's just harder, you know, more uncomfortable, deeper work 
that is initially painful, but actually leads to new life. And, and the work of Pharisee looks good, feels good, but it's whatever, the white, whited sepulcher that on the inside is, is full of rot. Not because Pharisees are inherently less valuable or worthy as people, but because they're not participating in the same process of redemption that disciples are because they think they're already redeemed. Yeah, I think a very painful truth that is hard for many Christians in America to hear, specifically Christians, is that we have many of the denominations that we have today because of racism. Yeah. We have Southern Baptist because yeah. of racism. In the Pentecostal tradition, we have the Assemblies of God because of racism, right? We have the when, AME Church. We have the AME Church when Richard Allen and others wanted to pray in the front of the Methodist Church, and they said, no, you can't do that. And they said, well, we, ha, you Peace. want us to be in this church? <laughs> yes, we, we, we're, we're out of here. Uh, in the Pentecostal tradition, and this is like after 1900, when, you know, the Pentecostal tradition started, William Seymour, this black preacher, it was a, it was a multi-ethnic interracial gathering in Los Angeles, and both the secular and church press criticized it as obscene, not only because they were speaking in tongues and all that, but because it was um, multi-ethnic. And um, early on, the, the Pentecostal tradition was, was very multi-ethnic, but then racism crept in and white Pentecostal said, wait a minute, <laughs> black folk, you can't run things. You can't, right. You, you right. gotta get that second, second class status. And so you have the church of God in Christ, historically African-American, and then um, the assemblies of God, which is historically white. And well, and I mean, we laud so much at the, the black, historically black Presbyterian churches in our own denomination. And and they are just a, an inheritance that is so rich and, um, you know, more amazing. And we don't tell the story of like, where did those churches come from? They came from the time when Black Presbyterians said, I'm not sitting in the balcony anymore. And if you won't let us participate in the process of becoming elders, if you won't let us have full inclusion in their communities, then we will leave and start our own community. And it's going to be Presbyterian. It's going to be more Presbyterian than the communities. You know, it was never that white Presbyterians didn't want black people in their churches. They wanted black people in their churches, in their place. They wanted yes. to be Presbyterian and, you know, participate in the American cultural norms at the same time. And that you just can't, you can't, because some of the American cultural norms are just twisted and wrong and one of the things i've been seeing around the world and not just in the church but just in the world at large are these societies so interesting that are attracted to maybe even embrace black culture but reject black people or limit black people to second class status yeah like i'm you know, my wife is Korean, so I tune into some K-pop every now and then. Um, I'm watching these K-pop groups. It's like they're they're yeah. they're trying to dance like hip-hop dancers. I I watch um, um, uh, some uh, dancing in Brazil and sing. I'm like, wait. I, I was watching some documentary about um, I think Argentina. I can't remember which country in South America, but clearly. You had these um, white Spanish-speaking people, wait, doing African dances. I'm like, okay, where did you get this from? <laughs> this yeah. did not come from Spain, uh, and so it's the same in the church. It's like we, we, the church wants to embrace a part of um, the, the the black um, Christian spiritual understanding and experience, and yet say, but we we still want to be in the driver's seat. Yeah, and you can be a leader in this denomination as long as you don't change it and as long as you don't tell the truth about its history. So you you can be, a, I mean, it's that's not leadership, that's tokenism, and that is, is the problem. So um, my current problem is that my children are melting down inside the house. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm running out of time. I'm running out of time. Um, 
so I don't know. We, we, we maybe should end it this week. I know you're preaching about hope. I'm preaching about justice. Yes, I'm, uh, my sermon is entitled A Booster Shot of Hope. I just have this image of when I, I, I hurt my leg years ago and the doctor said, you know, you need a tetanus booster shot. I was like, okay, I already had a tetanus shot. No, you need a booster. You got you to gotta, you gotta boost your immune system. And I think in this season where so many people are discouraged, we need a booster shot of hope. So First Peter chapter 1 um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us new birth into a living hope. So that's where we're going. And we are the second week in our Beautiful Way series, talking about Micah 6-8 last week, talking about the Lord does require this of us, that grace is not permission to do whatever we want. Grace is the power um, to um, do what God wants and what does God want? Um, he's shown you, O oh, mortal, what is good. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And so this week it's do justice. And the question is, okay, so what is justice? Because nobody walks around saying like, we're the party of injustice. <laughs> like I'm for, you know, everyone says to your point about the plot to kidnap the governor, they were going to kidnap her and put her on trial because their motivation is, no, 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 what we're doing is justice, right? Mm -hmm. So then how do we know that the justice that we are going after or conforming to, that it is God's justice and not just um, you know, our semantics of calling what is in our best interest, naming, labeling that justice. So we're doing the story of Naboth's vineyard and um, looking at the reality that, that the king um, had the power to get what he wanted and God coming, sending the prophet in to intervene to say, um, you, you, you thought you were just going up against Naboth, but you, you what you really did was position yourself against mm -hmm. God Almighty. Um, so that and that I fundamental idea that God is on the side of the crucified. Like like how much more clearly could God intervene with the powerless mm -hmm. over against the powerful than to literally come down and take on flesh and become the crucified to say that that this idea that if you're weak, you know you don't matter and and you're just a commodity to be used and discarded that that god absolutely fundamentally stands against that and judges it um and offers hope to those who are being crucified and judgment against the crucifiers so that's that's the sermon which i haven't written yet and i really need to to do now so <laughs> thanks for listening to us if you want to find out more about Doritos church if you need that booster shot of hope um d-e-r-i-t-a um derida presbyterian church in charlotte north carolina google it and it will pop you over to their website and you can listen to yolanda's message if you go to the derida church youtube page you can see it irl tomorrow morning and you can listen to yolanda's older sermons he's catching up the back catalog um on the Podbean website. <laughs> Look for the Dorita Church podcast. And if you want to find out more about the Grove, thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can worship with us tomorrow morning at 10. We are premiering our video and there's a lively chat on the live stream. So you could come and join us on our Facebook page, The Grove Charlotte. Um, and if you want to listen to um, any of the sermons from The Grove, our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast is on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> so thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.